As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Zonal Marking Podcast. Uh, there's no Ali Maxwell this week, so it's just me and Tom Warville after a pretty big couple of days in the football world. Ali always asks us what we've been writing about at this stage. I've obviously been writing about the Super League uh, and the prospect of that, and maybe uh, coming to a slightly different conclusion in the sense that I'm not sure it's unavoidable in the long run, and I think that the status quo in football is deeply flawed, and we should guard against glorifying that. Uh, There was also another big story on Monday, Tom, with the departure of Jose Mourinho from Tottenham and you were on Mourinho duty, I see. Yeah, very much. Quite funny because I think a couple of weeks ago we were talking about I was writing a piece gearing towards Mourinho's 1,000th game in charge and looking at trends and how that's changed. And uh, yeah, that was my my first port of call yesterday morning, getting started on the work on that. And then yeah, boom, half an hour in. You can stop writing that piece now or at least put it on the back burner until he joins Zenit St. Petersburg or wherever he'll, he'll, he'll end up next. Um, so yeah, I, I was kind of tasked with doing a bit of a um, bit of a data obituary, I guess, on what happened with Mourinho at, at Tottenham and just the, the decline, the way that they were playing and, and really just the numbers behind his time, uh, his, his 17 months in charge there. Yeah, and like all the great obituaries, you started writing before the, uh, <laughs> the end was confirmed, so it's very convenient for you. Uh, today we're going to go back and really discuss an article you wrote last week which was about crossing, which I thought was a really fascinating article because it's not something I've really seen analysed much before. For those listening who haven't read the article, what was the basis of it? It was really to to look at different types of crosses and try and put kind of a value on 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 crossing in the sport and understand like what it what value it adds, what are good locations to cross on, which are bad. And yeah, like you said, there's not really been any real work on crossing. I mean, it's it is a a big part of the game. Teams use it to score goals and manufacture chances but it's not really been put under the microscope too much so it was in a similar vein to a piece I did last year about passes and different types of passes and just naturally kind of led on led on from there really. Yeah it did indeed especially with the focus at times on Alexander-Arnold and Robertson because remember that article we did about Liverpool's passing last year was really good as well. Before we go into the kind of theory and the depth and how you did it I want to look at some what I would call the headline stats that jumped out at me First, one in 76 open play crosses leads to a goal. That's pretty rubbish, isn't it? Yeah, it's 
It's really pants. Um, it was probably a little bit higher than I expected, but it it just shows you how kind of a flawed strategy it is to just really keep pumping, pumping cross into the box. Really, I mean, I looked at one of the one of the things I I did in the analysis was kind of look over a six second window after the cross has gone in to see if there's a goal scored from the chaos that ensues afterwards or or an own goal, and it jumps up to one in fifty crosses lead to goals in that time, which is a pretty steep jump really but still one in 50 for every you know cross that goes in is uh yeah you can you can see why maybe the the top teams are looking to cross less and less and wide in, in recent seasons yeah the six second thing was interesting i haven't really seen that before looking at time frame rather than actions second stat that jumped out on me was a 25 percent drop in crossing numbers over the last decade in terms of crosses per game is that because the clubs have worked out that the numbers are pretty bad yeah, I wonder so. Uh, I wonder. I wonder if that's the case. Again, it's kind of intriguing because only really the top clubs have started to bring in data people in the last kind of few years. Liverpool being the exception, and yet Liverpool are a team that cross more than anyone else. So it's funny to see that they're going against the trend. But uh, I do wonder. It's just because we now have such a high ceiling of technical talent in the Premier League that they they kind of talents are better than just putting a cross into the box. And maybe there's a different profile of strikers, but we'll we'll get into that later. I see. Yeah, we definitely will. And before we do, last standout stat, and sticking with the rubbish stats, is Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang has zero assists from his last 183 crosses. I don't know where this fits into Mikel Arteta's pure maths, but I mean, that's that must be off the scale rubbish, right? Yeah, it's definitely one of the worst. Um, and you just think that he... <laughs> Aubameyang is a very, very good striker, and he's a very bad crosser. I mean, that's just like anyone can really tell you that. But yeah, he's been task with doing this for, for Arsenal which really doesn't make a lot of sense but um, yeah that was that was one of the more fun ones to pull out and thinking okay we, we've we've got a good headline here uh, if, if that's the stat we can use for it yeah I must say I mean when I played I was pretty much only good at crossing so I re- if I had 183 chances to cross the ball into the box I reckon I'd get one assist from one of them surely but yeah maybe not maybe it's harder than it seems let me ask you a little bit about the theory behind this all because like I said I've never really seen much in-depth analysis of crossing before has there been much prior research on this or anything at the Opta Pro Forum or yeah anything you kind of based your your work on yeah I I asked around a few people and I think a lot of the stuff that I only really found out after I've done the piece is that a few clubs have done kind of internal studies but there was one piece of research I was really I guess inspired by for this which is by uh, a cap called Gary Gillard who sadly passed away last year and he's a bit of a pioneer in the the football analytics space and he worked with Chelsea in the early kind of 2000s I think in a bunch of other clubs and he did a piece at the OptiPro forum which looked to do something fairly similar he used a different approach but yeah he essentially wanted to look at cross types using both the start and and the end location of where crosses go which I think is flawed for a couple of reasons but yeah, that was a, a big inspiration from his work and it was one of those presentations at the OptiPro Forum which you could see the, the applicable nature of it straight away to those in the building, um, which was, was really great to see. So yeah, that was a, a big inspiration for this piece. Yeah, I think we've mentioned Gary Gillard before. I mean, probably most people would be unfamiliar with him, but he was uh, he was almost the godfather of the football analytics movement, I think it's fair to say. I don't know whether this comparison will work for anyone else, but I always thought of him as... Like the Neil Young in relation to the grunge music, musicians of the 1990s, that kind of like older figure that was like an inspiration for everyone. So it's nice to hear his, his name again. Um, how about clubs? Have they conducted uh, analysis along these lines? Yeah, I was chatting to an analyst at um, 
at kind of one of the the big European clubs after the piece had come out and he was saying they'd done their own kind of similar work internally, not not exactly the same, but same sort of thing, and got same sort of zones and they used those zones actually on the training pitch and the manager would go out with the spray and draw the, the, the zones on and then they work and build drills to essentially get the ball into those zones to cross in from, which I thought was really cool. That's kind of like proper, you know, data-backed training which is probably the pinnacle of what you'd expect in the modern game at the moment so that was one example and then another analyst was talking about um, they were doing kind of one on one training with a striker and essentially said this if the ball's in this position this is where it's going to get crossed into and this is the movement you should make uh, and essentially just like teaching I guess rules for how to react to certain different types of crosses which was was fun to see as well yeah and it's good to see some numbers on it I mean I remember a couple of years ago before I was working for the Athletic I did an article about Basically, our crossing wasn't particularly valuable um, when I was working for, for ESPN. And I based it on this video of, I think it was Schalke in training. They were doing training drills. It was uncontested, so there were no defenders. And I think they went about 32 crosses without scoring. And that was just a crosser, a striker and a goalkeeper. Um, so it was nice to see a bit more detail uh, on, on all this. Let's go back to what we, we briefly mentioned before. You expanded the definition of an assist, which is pretty narrow in general. It's got to be a deliberate pass straight from a, a provider to a, a goal scorer. You went for something that, uh, or anything that creates a goal in six seconds. That presumably is quite a big change in terms of the, the numbers and how effective crossing can be considered to be. Yeah, I think the number of goals you get from a cross jumps up about 50% when you expand that window. And um, that was something that I saw Gary had had done and, and I kind of looked at you know how how many goals are scored within n number of seconds of a cross and six looked to be the right figure so it, it just can't kind of make sense like a lot of crossing when you put players putting a good cross I feel cross are maybe more spoken about when it's such a good ball that's whipped in and no one's on the end of it um, at times just because like the flight looks really good and it's in the dangerous area and things like that and I think the ensuing chaos or failure to clear or you know whatever happens after the cross is worth trying to capture in this situation so yeah that's that's one that um i added in and uh, there were some interesting comments in the piece after of people saying you know could you add that to other types of play could you add that to certain passes and things like that so you know you know a lot of things in football at the moment which are marked as unsuccessful or incomplete or whatever actually doesn't always capture the whole the whole story and all the context of what might happen afterwards. I think Burnley and uh, you know picking up second balls is one example. Ben Mee, James Tarkovsky's pass completion rates are really low, but how many times do Burnley actually pick up second balls from that? And they've served their purpose. It's not a complete pass, but they've they've gained territory. They've they've moved further forward because of it. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Burnley. I mean, we think of it as quite an old school approach, don't we? I mean, certainly when I was doing a book about history of Premier League tactics, sides that were based around crossing were kind of. 1990s sides Blackburn and Newcastle in particular but I do remember Guardiola maybe when he was at Barcelona saying something similar about the second balls thing and I think when they brought in Fabregas he mentioned that when they were crossing they weren't always picking up the second balls on the edge of the box and Fabregas was the kind of player that might do that yeah it's definitely an interesting one it's this kind of like late run into the box and I didn't really look at perhaps the beneficiaries of this added assist but maybe that would actually pick up the guys who are making that late run into space picking up that second ball and I mean one recent example obviously Ali's Ali's not here but um, I think Philip Billing has done that really effectively recently for, for Bournemouth I think he's scored um, six goals in in a recent number of games and that has been a lot because he's he's been the Danish Frank Lampard and steaming into the box at the last moment so um, yeah again another another thing to potentially look into it in a later article yeah it's interesting I like Billing 
Actually, I thought he was the only standout player for, for Huddersfield, really. I thought he always looked quite good. For, in a number of ways, he had a good long throw as well. I'm always quite partial to a bit of a long throw. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about why the, the change of crossing has, has come about. I mean, the, the game's become so much more technical and we don't really have the wingers like in the Blackburn and Newcastle era now. They're, they're multifaceted, aren't they? They're creators, they're pressers, they're goal scorers. They're, they're kind of playing tight little passes. I mean, did you? Was there any analysis in in terms of what type of sides use crossing? I mean, was it was it poorer sides? Was it sides at the bottom of the table? Because we don't really think of uh, the top sides playing wingers who cross. Obviously, fullbacks cross a lot, but in general, wingers who cross that seems to belong to either a bygone era or sides at the bottom of the table. Really, yeah, I think we have seen the kind of a different change of profile of player who's putting crosses in more I mean I think the likes of maybe City are a bit of an outlier but I mean De Bruyne is someone who isn't he isn't a winger he's an attacking midfielder but still manages to cross the ball a lot because of kind of the freedom and, and the nature of his role but um, yeah there was a bit of analysis I uh, I was kind of chatting to Tom Reynolds who um, works with Stats Perform and he's a kind of AI manager there uh, works on a lot of their, their products and was kind of talking about some numbers he looked at and showed that if you look at the even number of crosses per 90 on one axis and kind of like proportion of chances created that comes from crosses on the other you see a lot of recent champions in Europe aren't very cross heavy and yet the, the kind of relegated sides the poorer sides in this instance rely so much more on crossing um, which makes me think is that because the again is like a, a technical ceiling such that you think okay we're not good enough to create chances any other way we've just got to play the percentage game and try and try and benefit from, from that perspective so again it I think back to Brighton a lot this season and think I don't think they cross all that much at all and maybe that's because they've identified that it's a low percentage strategy and actually trying to play football even though you don't have the budget to compete with other teams but you can still find these players to fit the system and, and they play for a team their size very attractive football when under Chris Hutton perhaps they were a lot more I guess agricultural in their approach to to playing and, and creating chances. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Bright, it's interesting you mentioned Brighton because the last couple of times I've seen them, they've been using, or Potter's been using a system where they have two wing-backs who end up as central midfielders. So I'm not surprised they're not getting into crossing positions very often. Let's get to some specifics because you basically separate crossing positions into eight different zones. So that's your big news, everyone. There's, there's basically eight different crossing zones. How did you come across these zones? Yeah, I can go very much into the the modelling type, but this was a kind of example of data. Or, you know, it's never fully objective. Like I still had to make choices of how many zones there are, how we get to the zones, how to do the modelling in the first place, and things like that. So there's always decisions to be made in kind of any any data analysis, really. So if you read otherwise, you can um, you can call BS uh, on that. But what I did was uh, I used an approach called unsupervised learning. Um, and that effectively means that you don't have labels for things. You need to like create the, the labels from the data. So the simplest way I thought for us to explain it is that you have 100 types of beer and you're told to categorize them into six different types of beer. So you've got just 100 different bottles and cans on a table and you've got to put them into the six different types. And you, you, you might know like the alcohol content, the hoppiness, whether it's in a, a bottle or a can. And then you'll kind of go and think in your mind, okay, what are the best ways that I can group these together into like six similar categories and do it that way? And you might, you might to start with, just have like some which are slightly taller bottles and they're more, you know, more alcoholic content in them or something like that. And you keep tweaking and tweaking the groups until you kind of stop and you can't change them anymore. And you're like, right, these are my six categories. 
So that's kind of what unsu- unsupervised is. You're using the characteristics of the, the thing in question to group them. Supervised learning, on the other hand, is where we'd have labels. So you'd be like, right, one's an IPA, one's a pale ale, one's a stout. Far easier, kind of arguably better in this situation because you can just quickly be like, right, bam, these are all the groups. Much easier job. In terms of crossing, we don't really have those like nice labels for different types of crosses. We don't really have like you know, whipped in from deep or to the byline. We don't really know much about like, the trajectory of the cross or the way it's hit and things like that. So we, I kind of had to take a more unsupervised approach and say, look, just based on the starting location of the cross, what is the different type? So when we say types here, it's more like the zones crosses come from because the types within them can actually differ a fair bit. I think Opta only recently added kind of driven cross and floated as a as a addition to their data, which is good, but you don't obviously have enough uh, enough of a sample to really build a, uh, that into the model so far. So you need a lot of crosses to do this. I use around 35,000. And yeah, mainly just looked at the starting location. The issue with, with end locations at times is <laughs> you have some crosses which will just completely go com- all the other sides to the, you know, from, from the right side or over to the touchdown on the left and go up for a throw in. And that just completely kills how, you, how do you categorize that? Because you don't know where they were aiming for. They weren't aiming for the corner flag on the far side of the pitch or the, or the you know, usually we'll be aiming for, aiming for that location. I mean, looking at these zones, the thing that surprised me most was the most profitable in terms of the percentage of crosses that turn into a goal come from the corners of the box, broadly speaking. So this isn't like a cutback position. It's not near the corner flag. It's not out wide. It's not from what I would call the Kevin De Bruyne position. It's almost in a bit of an in-between position, which surprised me, but clearly that is very useful. That's the best zone to cross from. Yeah, definitely. It surprised me too, but having kind of think thought about it, I think there's there's probably a few reasons. The first is that that area might encapsulate a few different types of crosses you can put in. So you've got from the corner of the box, you can probably put it to the back post, which I think anecdotally is a, a quite a good chance because you can get on the blind side of the defender it's a tough angle to to score from but you know you can you've got a pretty good area of the goal to aim for uh, and then you've probably got not got cutbacks but you've probably just got kind of square balls in the box which will be categorized as as crosses in this instance and players then have you know the center of the the whole goal to aim for but yeah that was a an interesting one i perhaps thought that cutbacks might be you know maybe a bit further forward in the box might be a bit better but it's probably what we don't think of there is the wastage, the number of crosses which just like get blocked or cleared or go for a corner. And I looked through a lot of De Bruyne's crosses because they confirmed that situation. And a lot of them are just defended first time. And it's only really in a situation where City have a real man advantage or that the box is very unorganized when that cross becomes effective for him. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. 
Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Yeah, I'd encourage everyone to go and uh, read the article if this is of interest because the visualisation is probably the best bit of the article rather than the text itself. And the eight different zones are... They're kind of logical when you um, when you think about the separation. Uh, I like the fact you had to give them names as well, which is always the slightly tricky bit. I like high and wide because it reminds me a little bit of a Radiohead song. Uh, and, and it's just, you, you can... I mean, another thing you did, which uh, maybe it's worth going on to now, is you also looked at the players who cross most frequently from each zone. And that was interesting because you can really start to visualise them. So, for example, um, I've just referred to... One zone is the Kevin De Bruyne position, which I hope is you know, one that people will mean. Not central, not on the right, not really high up level with the penalty box, but kind of in that in-between mid, uh, midfield position I thought was really interesting. Uh, high outside the penalty area is another one uh, where I wouldn't necessarily have guessed the player. The thing I like about that, the, play, the two players who cross from the left and the right from high outside the penalty area are Bertrand and Traore, but not Bertrand Traore, which uh, confused me at first. Uh, any other patterns you found from this? Anything that jumps out on you or surprised you, I guess, is always the interesting uh, category of players in this regard. Yeah, probably the ones that are kind of high in the corner, uh, how it were about the corner flag, which is the second most popular zone to cross from, which you can kind of imagine, you know, fullback has overlapping winger, plays to him, ball comes in. It's a really popular zone to cross from, but it was only the sixth best area to cross on when it comes to kind of number of uh, of goals scored from there so that one for me is interesting you know teams still will cross a lot from there even when it's a fairly bad strategy and um i do wonder if you kind of have to expand the window a bit a bit more not just six seconds but does that do something where you actually you then get the second ball on the edge of the area and you can start a move from there and it's actually a more efficient way of of getting that ball into that zone 14 without having the quality to kind of get the ball there in the first place. So that was one that was interesting. Um, the other is the kind of half half space channel area, which the, the, the kind of players which I identified there just really, really made sense to me. And you've got De Bruyne from the right-hand side clipping in and Robertson from the left. And I think Robertson was really, really effective from that zone, arguably the most effective player from there. So it was just nice to see kind of the zones in your head that you've kind of built up a, a mental image of match with the data at times and then others which it really completely doesn't I think Adama Traore was uh, uh, you just mentioned him about that kind of high outside the penalty area he makes that across in that situation far more than any other player I think it was 141 and the next highest was like 90 or something like that so that very much is his game it's you know run down get to the byline chip it back in so yeah it was a, it was a lot of fun kind of seeing those different zones and uh, who's who's using them yeah, I like, uh, there's a couple I really like. I mean, high inside the penalty area you've got, so these are kind of cutback positions, I suppose, broadly speaking. You've got Mane and Bernardo Silva kind of getting in there through, probably maybe even from through balls in behind to get into those positions or or going between defenders. And then you've got high and wide, which is basically near the corner flags, where the two most prolific crosses are Charlie Taylor and Mark Albrighton, <laughs> who just feel so old school. Yeah. You know, Charlie Taylor's a very... Yeah, almost a 1990s fullback and Albright and one of the last wingers around, I suppose, who is predominantly a crosser. And I just imagine him really almost running around the ball to, to 
dig out across from near the corner flag. The, I guess the most interesting player, and this won't come as a surprise. I mean, you mentioned De Bruyne already. He's probably the other contender for this. But Alexander-Arnold, I mean, if we comp- if we combine the two things we've been talking about, you found that the least profitable place to cross from was deep and by the touchline. So basically traditional fullback positions, I'd say. But Alexander-Arnold, who is the most prolific assister, most regularly crosses from those positions. So my my conclusion from that is he is just an insanely good crosser, or is there more nuance to it? Yeah, it's, it is funny. I mean, 131 crosses from that area, which, like you said, is the most, but he's only got one assist in that time, which is not quite Aubameyang numbers, but, you know, it's it's up there. Um, and it does make me think that, you know, why is he being asked to do that so much? Because Liverpool have the numbers, they have the understanding internally to work out that that is not a, you know, directly creating a lot of chances. Um, so, again, is, is it just because they can pick up second balls and counter-press from where the ball ends up after that? But it's the, the kind of half-space area was, again, Robertson's really, really good from the left side. De Bruyne is on the right side. But even Trent himself has, has four assists and one added assist from 20, 123 crosses in that location. So that was really interesting. But, yeah, a lot uh, a lot of this kind of article was, was a bit with Trent in mind because it's just such a big part of his game. And, I mean, he had the most added assists, which... Um, I think it's seven overall, and those obviously goals are our own goal was scored within six seconds of putting a cross in. But generally, with Trent, there's this whole issue with players such as him because he will be high up in terms of goals created and uh, you know assists and things like that because he just crosses the ball so much. Um, so he's got one point zero point one eight total assists per ninety, which is his top four players in that time. But if you look at the numbers per 100 crosses, so for every 100 crosses, how many assists would you expect from these guys or how many do they get per their numbers? Leroy Sané was by far and away the most kind of successful crosser, the most threatening. Then Marcus Rashford, then Kevin De Bruyne. So there's a trade-off here because Sané doesn't cross a lot. He only gets in those situations uh, an infrequent number of times, but they're obviously very, very high value and threatening areas. Whereas Trent is, is putting the ball in a lot because he does have quality and probably because he he can create more than the average player would from from the positions he get, he gets into. So, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic of like volume and efficiency and and Trent I think is is definitely a mix of the both, but then you've got you know Sané, Rashford and De Bruyne who are all very good technical players, didn't cross don't cross a, a ton, but are also very good at picking up assists as well on a kind of efficiency efficiency basis. And in terms of the efficiency and the effectiveness of the crosses, I mean, Alexander Arnold's very good, De Bruyne's very good. That one comes as a surprise. Is there anyone else who who kind of stands out in that respect who uh, who looks good from this you know relatively unique approach to analysing crossing? Yeah, Matt Ritchie was one who, again, maybe if you from being honest, probably thought of him as a decent crosser, but he's one who, um, if you looked at kind of the number of assists you'd expect him to get from his crosses, number he actually gets, and I kind of use that differential as a measure of, I guess, quality of crossing or, or you know crossing ability. He was fourth on the list, I think, behind um, you know Trent De Bruyne, Robertson, and then himself. And um, it's quite poetic watching the Newcastle game at the weekend, and he pops up with a cross for Joe Willock to kind of bash in at the end to to win the game against West Ham. So that was a really nice timing. So yeah, Richie was was one of them for sure. I'm trying to think of of others. There was maybe I think Callum Hudson Odoi is someone who comes up really really high in terms of just like crossing assists and added assists from from wide positions. And 
we've seen Tuchel try and use him a lot more. I mean, we've seen him at wing-back recently, which was a bit of, surprise, a bit of a surprise early in the season. But you then see in the numbers kind of the threat that he adds from these wide positions. And uh, it starts to make a lot more sense to use him there. So he's one that I would be kind of watching going forwards when he's in these wide positions. Like, what, what locations is he crossing from? Um, it probably helps with a guy like Giroud in the box at times. I mean, Ben Chilwell is someone who, when you look at the difference between his his expected assists from crosses and actual assists, was a lot higher. And uh, I mentioned that to um, a couple of friends who work at clubs, and like, you know, what's the reason for that? And they were like, well, it helps having helps having Giroud up front, it helps having um, Vardy to maybe crash in second balls. So there's a lot of, you know, it takes, I wrote in the piece kind of, it takes two to tango from crosses. You need a, a good receiver the same way you need a good crosser. So um, yeah, there's there's some players here who look really good, but I think it's because the receivers they're going to or the guys they're crossing towards are just incredible in the air and they can make a bad cross look, look like a good one. Yeah, there's a few interesting players. I mean, I found Ward Prowse quite interesting. He's kind of at the lower end of the scale in terms of the effect, uh, effectiveness of his crossing which is interesting because a lot of people would consider him the best corner taker in the league. But it's a different skill, isn't it? It's a more open skill. Um, you do need, I think, a little bit more imagination, a little bit of uh, maybe more creative ability in you. I think actually of slightly different note, but I think of Oxlade-Chamberlain as a player who's very good at delivering set pieces, but not necessarily good uh, delivering passes in open play. So maybe he's along the same lines. Yeah, I'm the same with Ward-Prowse. I kind of think that uh, in open play, the the players he's crossing to in terms of, you know, Ings and Adams and Bertrand and the kind of more smaller wingers are, are different to the guys he's probably aiming for at, at set pieces. You know, Bednarek's a giant, Vestergaard's a giant and and again, it's this whole, like, the receiver has a big part to play in uh, in making the cross a good cross. I mean, without them, it's nothing will happen. Um, which, yeah, again, uh, and then it's interesting kind of like how do you measure, how do you measure, like, you know, technique and te- we talk a lot about technical players but someone like Ward Prowse if you just looked at open play and you just looked at these numbers you you wouldn't really think he's he's that good but there's probably a lot more from actually watching it where you can see the the quality of the delivery is good even if the guy at the end of it isn't isn't great so um yeah I think that's a very difficult thing to measure and that's probably why you know we still have people watching video you know data can't answer everything this this is one of the kind of blind spots we have at the moment yeah absolutely um my last question on this is to what extent does variety make a difference to the effectiveness of crossing? Because I remember being at an Opta Pro Forum a long time ago, probably five or six years ago. It suggested, it was really interesting, it suggested that different types of attack made a difference. Or they're more effective when it was a bit of a surprise. So, for example, if you'd attempted a few attacking moves with long balls or through balls, then a cross was more likely to be successful than if it was your 10th cross in a row. I guess my question is, a Liverpool's cross is good in part, because they have threats from elsewhere and they're not just a Burnley, they're not just a crossing team. Yeah, I think um, I think that work was done by Sam Gregory, who's now um, works for Inter Miami as their director of analytics. So somewhat, again, uh, nice of this podcast that we've got someone working for Beckham's club, all-time great crosser of the ball, um, doing research that we talk about here. But um, yeah, I've not looked into this in any real detail, but I think it's, it's a really good question and from you know think about it if you if you put yourself in the shoes of a defender it's probably if you're facing the same thing over and over again it probably becomes more repetitive almost like in training and you kind of get conditioned to how to deal with that situation where if you've got kind of you know they're countering you one time one second from the left and the other from the right at a different time there's a lot more kind of chaos there's a lot of things to 
I guess, in your mind deal with, let alone deal with the ball. So I think coming back to that original example with kind of Arteta and, and pure maths, like maybe if Arsenal varied their, their approach a bit more, they'd actually have more luck delivering balls into the box that wouldn't just be kind of, you know, unthreatening, for lack of a better word. So, yeah, I think that's that's definitely an interesting one. Yeah, well, once again, I'd encourage everyone to, uh, to have a look at the article on the site because, like I said, it's the visualisations that are really interesting. And it's, I guess, a modern approach to an age-old question. I remember doing research on Blackburn Rovers when they won the title in 1995 and there was a big debate on the, on the training ground between uh, Ray Harford, who was the assistant manager, but for all intents and purposes, was almost lead, well, led the side in every training session. And he always said that you should cross the ball from what he called the magic box, which was the, basically the sides of the pitch kind of as if the penalty box continued across the width of the pitch. So he didn't want his players ever to cross from there. He wanted Ripley and Wilcox and Graham Lesseau to get in those positions. And Alan Shearer was very insistent that he didn't mind crosses from deeper positions, from those kind of Beckham positions. Uh, and I actually asked Shearer about this when I was doing an article with him early in the season. Of course, he is, is one of our columnists for The Athletic. So next time, if I'm ever on Shearer duty, I might well send this article his way or send him some of the visualizations because I think to a certain extent some of it supports his view in terms of uh, in terms of the best crossing positions that's all we've got for today thank you very much for joining us thanks very much to Tom for joining me discussing this uh, there is as always lots of other stuff on the site at the moment I think I'm right in saying it's been our busiest few days or one of our busiest periods at least since we launched uh, coming up to two years ago because of course of the chat about the Super League, but there's so much else on the site. There's still the usual Premier League coverage. Massive week in the WSL. Huge game this week between Manchester City and Chelsea. I'll be covering that. Uh, Tom, anything you are focusing on in the coming days? Um, getting wrapped up really for the uh, Manchester City's title parade. So what's the kind of the data and, and the stories and the data behind their their season this season? Because um, the stories of their their title win this season, um, it's probably unlikely that Manchester United catch them. Yeah, a lot to a lot to look forward to. They're going to be working with Sam Lee on a couple of big reads, so uh, excited for that. Yeah, nice. No, so I think I'm doing a similar article on all the different formations Guardiola has used this season, which is a never-ending task. Might need some of your cluster analysis for that one. Uh, But that's it. Thank you very much for joining us. I think Ali will be back with us next week. So hopefully see you then. The Athletic.